Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 505th edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host, Daniel Feuerstein, give you American perspective, our clubs, leagues, players, national team, and other fabulous moments to get your daily reading from me and other writers over, I should say, no other fabulous writers. Uh, of course, Feuerstein's Fire, now a blog. Uh, you can come on. It just got it started, and um, hopefully you'll love the, the content I give uh, on my own. So, and just as much as the content I give... For this show, uh, there's a big question mark now surrounding football in the uh, world right now, mostly in Europe. But, you know, in, in some ways it affects us. It does affect us, as we've all talked about. And it's been going on in Europe most of the time, obviously, with this Super League that these 12 clubs, six from England, three from Italy, and three from Spain were talked about to break away from their respective nations in, your, in Western Europe and forming a league where it is just them all the time. All the time. Now, what does that have to do with us here in the States? It, it does a lot, if you really think about it. The struggles, the struggles that we're having right now as a nation that loves this game. Because everything's intertwined. Whether you like it or whether you know it or not, everything is intertwined. With what happens in Europe and what's happening here in the United States. Because as we all know, there are many people that believe, and I am one of them, maybe not as loudly as I have been in the past, but I do believe in it, that everything should be open, everything should be working together, together on this issue. We must have the mechanism of promotion relegation in this country. And even though I have had my, I wouldn't say my doubts, but my reasons and my opinions of why we're not there yet, it continues to show in this country right now why I believe we are not there yet. It is easy to stand on top of a soapbox and scream and yell and, and just yell out bloody murder why this country should be having it right now. But it's hard to have open dialogue and have constructive conversation on why it should be here now 
Why are these the reasons we have to have it now? When will we have it now? And I have said many, many times, there are not enough stadiums, grounds, room that every single club does not have their own stadium. This is why I have always said to have this happen, and I've always said this as well, you don't have to have a stadium size like Red Bull Arena. You don't have to have a stadium size like Bank of California. The new stadium in Austin, Texas, Explorer Stadium. As long as you own the land, you own the ground, you own the pitch by these clubs, everything will come to fruition. And then when we get there, then it can happen. You might have to wait. But when you see these 12 clubs coming in and then all of a sudden deciding to ignore what has been going on in the world and in Europe for such a long period of time. It is interesting to watch, but it's also tough to watch. Because if you really think about it, the sport right now, they have guns drawn at them. Target is on the back, or shall we say, the balls and the, and the nets and the pitches of the sport in Europe. Because we watch what goes on in England. We watch what goes on in Germany, in Italy, in Spain. We watch these moments. We, we pay attention to what goes on. We support clubs in Europe. Without a doubt. We support our own clubs in this country. And we also support clubs in Europe. Because why? Because we love the game. We love this game. You know... Bronx, my father, my uncle, took our families to Giant Stadium in the Meadowlands of East Rutherford, New Jersey, to watch the New York Cosmos play. To watch the Cosmos play. And a sold-out Giant Stadium to watch the sport. Sadly on AstroTurf, but they watched the sport. These players were a part of the fixture of the New York, New Jersey soccer scene. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> this is a culture that really brought that league and the sport into prom- prominence in our, in our nation. And while we still have that moment, and we're still building it, still growing it, improving it, I'm telling you right now, the love of the game 
was brought back when the World Cup came in 1994. And hopefully in 2026, it will be even bigger and better. But I just have to say, it does matter here what goes on. It does matter what is said about that mechanism that can improve the technical abilities of the players, of the clubs, the level of growing up might have to come a lot quicker than what maybe I anticipated and maybe what others may have anticipated. Because as of right now, outside of the pandemic, and when this pandemic is over, the top division at this moment, a club will not play every single team in the other conference unless you face them in the Open Cup or in the MLS Cup final. And we can't continue to have this. Obviously, money is a big thing. Money makes the world go round. There's nothing you can do about it. But to see the reactions and the scenes all over Europe, especially in England, it, it really warmed my heart to see everyone complaining and having a protest without violence, which was fantastic about it. Do we need dialogue? Yes, we need dialogue here. Everyone must listen to everyone before going off half-cocked and screwing themselves for the wrong reasons. It's not just a European thing. It's an American thing. And the only reason why I'm saying this is because Sebastian Salazar of ESPN, you know, he wants to champion it, to have an open system here in the U.S. We all do. Now, this is his tweet, by the way, goes, and this is back on April 20th. Now isn't the time for Super League explainers from U.S. soccer media. Let Europe handle that. No. No. No, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. And I understand he goes, now is the time to ask why we still have a closed system here and what we're missing out on as a result. We understand that, but we have to talk about it. We have to talk about this. Because if we don't talk about this as Americans fighting for that right to one day finally opening up everything, making the pyramid relevant here in this country... then what's the point of having our own leagues here? What is the point? This is a pivotal moment, I think. You have a, someone that lives in this country, born in this country, 
And at the same time, expats of those from England, from France, from Germany, from Spain, from Italy, from all over Europe, who moved to this country to have a better life, who got involved supporting the game in their nation and in our nation, their voices matter too. All these expats that have moved from Europe to here, they have a right to speak about it. They're the ones influencing our children, and we are influencing our children to love this game. So yes, we have to talk about it as Americans. You have to shock the sports fans of this country who are NFL fans, NBA fans, NHL fans, Major League Baseball fans. How would you like it if you saw a minor league team get a chance to be promoted into the major leagues and the worst team, the worst team of that year goes relegated and goes to the AAA league of that said sport? Do you know how much shock there would be? Do you know how upset that would happen? The, the, the amount of anger of a normal, regular sports fan in this country? Could you imagine what could happen? Hell, Jeremy Shep also said it as well. If there was no NFL draft, if you had the worst record of the season last year, if you were the 1-15 or the 0-16 team last year in the National Football League season, and instead of having the number one pick in the first round of the NFL draft for 2021, you would be relegated to a AAA league below the NFL, which there is no AAA league. It's probably just college football or arena football. Could you imagine the shock that would be if an NFL team becomes an arena football league team, an arena football league team becomes an NFL team? That would shock them completely. So this is why the discussion matters here in this country when it comes to the world's game. This the reason why. If we are going to talk about it, we got to have a lot of, you know, gusto behind it. Because one day, one day, we have to shock the sports fan in this country and tell them, hey, this is what happens. You like it? You want to be a part of it? Come and join us. Because this is what goes on, my friends. This is what goes on in the level of what a professional sports club does when they are threatened to leave the top league and move on down to the next league because you screwed up, you messed up, now try and re-earn it. Try to earn it back that's all we're saying try and earn it back if you can if you can't hey that's not our fault 
Try again next year. Try again next year. Ladies and gentlemen, great show for you tonight. Of course, we are going to talk about the quick birth and death of the UEFA Super League. And at the same time, what does that mean for us here with U.S. Soccer and why, why this happened? Peter Wilt, owner of Chicago House of the NISA, Carter Krishnire of World Soccer Talk joins me. Gentlemen, thank you for uh, your time. This is a very important discussion, I think. We'll go with the course that the European situation, then we'll move on with the situation of why we have to have it here in American soccer. But, Carter, you know, you support Manchester City of the Premier League in England. Um, you were very outraged when you heard about this UEFA Super League happening. Um, you were very, very happy that they pulled out of it, even though it sounds like it's not completely over yet. But at the moment, the situation is off the table. Yeah, it's it's off the table for now, but uh, I I think it's very disturbing. Uh, and look, I think the culture, I'll be real honest about this, the culture of being a supporter of Manchester City has changed in the last 10 years as we've attracted a lot of front-running fans and a lot of, um, I don't want to call them plastics. I know I know you guys, Red Bulls, like to call the, the fans of NYCFC, the sister team of Manchester City, plastics. But um, so... I think there were some supporters that, not I think, I saw there were some supporters that actually supported the Super League, some Manchester City supporters, which to me was absolutely stunning as a club that was a yo-yo club. Uh, since I've been a supporter, we've been relegated three times and we've been, support, we've been promoted three times. So um, as someone who's a legacy fan, I guess that's the term we're using after this week, um, it was stunning to me that there were actually some of our supporters and, and admittedly, they weren't from the U.K. They were from the U.S. or, or, or India or Malaysia or other places that um, supported this. But the, the, the overall thing for me, Daniel, is how tone deaf and out of touch with your base of supporters could these six English clubs have been and, uh, and, and, and some of the other clubs on the continent. Uh, Atleti would be the one, actually, because I think Real Madrid and Barcelona have a different kind of – uh, uh, supporter or socio, right? They're, they're membership clubs, so they have socios. And then uh, the three Italian clubs, um, the supporters of the three the three Italian clubs that were involved are different than the supporters of the other uh, 17 clubs right now in the top flight in Serie A, the clubs in Serie A B. So that, I, I think if they're going to do a breakaway league, they pick the right Italian clubs because their supporters of those three clubs are a little different. Um, but how tone deaf and out of touch the supporters and how out of touch with the history of your own football clubs and with the people who are around your football clubs, even currently, could you have been to have undertaken this? And that, I think, is the fundamental issue now that people are talking about in the United Kingdom in the wake of this. In fact, uh, the story has, uh, has more legs than just the 48 hours of the Super League. In fact, in fact you, you turn on Sky Sports News now, this is what they're talking about. They're still talking about the Super League and, and the ramifications. So um, I think we have to think about this from the perspective of uh, as clubs get bigger and bigger and football clubs become more global, do they lose touch uh, with their own supporter base? And, and I know 
the other gentleman you have on the show today, Peter Wolf, has a lot of experience dealing with supporters. Is probably the best in the business in this country in dealing with supporters and has had some of these same battles himself uh, within this country in, in the supporters' culture. And hopefully we do have Peter Wiltz on. Uh, Peter, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you today? Wonderful. Thank you for joining us, Peter. And, you know, the reason why I have Peter Wiltz on, obviously, he has created many, many clubs in the United States. Obviously, the Chicago Fire back in 1998 was general manager of the club. Uh, Indy 11, of course, in USL Championship. Uh, back then was NASL, of course. Uh, Chicago House in the National Independent Soccer Association that he is a part of now in the uh, ownership group. So I feel Peter is very qualified to discuss this because not only has he had to build clubs within the system of building clubs in this country, but you know his opinion really matters because obviously, Peter, you believe in the beliefs that Cardiac has, that I have, that one day... You know, in the United States, pro- promotion relegation should be implemented. At the moment, there's still more work to be done, I believe, but you're a big supporter of, the, of this sport. You're a big supporter of this game, especially you probably have a club in Europe that you follow, you know, a lot with. When you, have, when you saw and read the news about this breakaway uh, league that the 12 clubs from West from Western Europe were trying to create, and now they've backed off. How did that make you feel as someone who is truly grassroots of this sport? Well, I think Carter really hit the nail on the head. I think the term tone deaf is what resonated to me. And when I heard it, I didn't get as angry and as upset as most people because I believed it had zero chance of being successful. I, I, I knew the, the fans themselves would uh, be in an uproar, and they were indeed. Uh, maybe it's naivete, but I also believe FIFA and UEFA would put roadblocks in the way. I, again, I, I may be wrong about how that would have panned out. You know, money cures everything with them, and perhaps there was a path through. What I had feared uh, long before this, and to be honest, I still fear this, is that instead of a closed system Super League, they would try to maneuver the system by creating a hybrid utilizing a somewhat open Super League that would take – well, okay, this is – you tell me what you guys think of a, a plan like this and where it falls apart. You take – the 16 finalists of the Champions League in a future year, say two years down the road, and you say those 16 spots are going to be founding member, members of a new European uh, Super League. And then it's not a closed system. Those 16 teams don't stay there forever. Uh, but there is pro-rel with, say, the bottom five. And each of the large European leagues, the five leagues, each get one spot in there. Or maybe there's some other formula, and maybe it's, mm-hmm. it's four or two, uh, and maybe it grows to 20. But have it so there is pro-rel between the Super League and the five top European leagues. 
and maybe there's even a play-in round. So the Dutch League and the Belgium League and other European leagues have a route to get to the Super League. I thought that could happen, and it still could happen, and I don't necessarily want that to happen. I like the sport the way it is currently. You asked about my uh, European team. It's Fulham. <laughs> so you talk about yo-yo <laughs> teams. Um, yes, Man City was a yo-yo team. Fulham is, in the present tense, a yo-yo team. And I, while I am very saddened about it right now, I appreciate it. I think that's the word. Because when we are in the premiership, we've earned it. Carter and Daniel, what do you think of that concept of an open system Super League? Well, first things first, uh, Peter, thank God you're not a Newcastle supporter. That's more yo-yo than Fulham. I know Dylan Butler is going to kill me on that one, that's for sure. But anyway, look, I mean, if, if so be it that it's an open league, then that's fine. I don't have a problem with it. But still, though, you know, my feeling, and Mount of Cardiff will agree with me on this, what does that do to the, uh, the FAs that represent each individual country in Europe, and not just in Europe, but around the world? Let's just say for the hell of it. Let's just say this, though, uh, Peter, and Cardiff, you can chime in too. This would mean that the football associations of those respective countries, their powers would be null and void because they're the ones that are supposed to be running the sport within their own bounds. UEFA, Asia, Africa, CONCACAF, they control what goes on in their regions, and of course FIFA handles the entire game in the entire globe. So I really think it's more of a war on the individual FAs per each country of Europe that are being threatened by this. What do you think, Cardiff? Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, Daniel, I agree with that, but I, I, I like Peter's suggestion in the sense that it gives us a talking point because I think there is a certain point where these big clubs thought UEFA would buy in to what they're doing. And maybe this ridiculous Super League proposal, this ridiculous breakaway close league they were proposing, uh, would have been a uh, starting point for negotiation. I, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the optimistic side of me says that. The uh, pessimistic and probably more realistic side of me says, no, these guys are just tone deaf and greedy and we're looking to dismember football as we know it, right? That's, that's probably the reality. But um, I think they need buy-in from UEFA if they're ever going to do anything in the future. They now know this. And FIFA. You know, Peter mentioned FIFA also. Obviously, um, money talks with both FIFA and UEFA. I think the way a partially open league, like Peter described, would um, get to first base, so to speak, with UEFA would be if there were some ability to share revenues with, um, with leagues and clubs from other countries, from Eastern Europe in particular, uh, where UEFA uh, – remember, UEFA is a, is a democracy like FIFA, and their members, they feel, from Eastern Europe uh, have been have, – have not really benefited from um, the largesse of the big clubs and, and, and more and more money floating to certain clubs in the big five leagues. So uh, taking care of Belgium and, and the Netherlands, Peter mentioned that. Uh, uh, Portugal is also a very good league with uh, obviously Porto is regularly in the knockout stages of the Champions League but also the leagues in Eastern Europe this is why they revamped the Europa League 
and made it more accessible. Uh, they went from UEFA Cup to Europa League uh, several years ago, and now are proposing this new Champions League format, which would give you, uh, at least in theory, more, more, more teams from, uh, from Eastern Europe, but would also generate more revenue for the big clubs. Um, so I think it comes down to revenue and money. If UEFA feels like they can monetize a partially closed league uh, for their own benefits, uh, and for the benefits of their members, they will do it. For the benefits of their other members, their, their Eastern European members and, and uh, members in the Balkans, et cetera. Now, in terms of the big five leagues and the big five FAs, Daniel, that you mentioned, I do not think they will go for any sort of uh, proposal that involves this sort of uh, uh, European Super League, whether it's partially opened or completely closed. I don't think the, the, the five FAs will go for it. And in, in fact, um, you know, it's a very good thing for – uh, that, that none of the German clubs joined. I don't know how legally the German clubs could even join a Super League breakaway because they would have to have a member member vote technically. Um, but I think, especially in a country like Germany, I just cannot see uh, this even uh, getting off the ground. Even if they if they had Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich in it every year, I just think culturally it's something that would not be accepted in Germany. I think we, we see it won't be accepted in England. And um, although this is the question for, for, for you guys, Spain and Italy... The reaction in Spain was very muted. The reaction in Italy was um, there were some strong feelings, but it wasn't quite like it was in England. And, in fact, I would say the feelings in France and in Germany, even though their teams uh, declined participation, were stronger than they were in Italy and in Spain. So maybe there is a possibility of a closed league that just doesn't include English or German teams. But then where do you get the revenue? If you don't have English teams in it, I just don't think from a from – a, uh, marketing standpoint, global media rights standpoint, it's, it's very attractive unless you have English clubs. Very true. Um, let me just say this, and this is from <clears throat> I found this on Twitter, obviously, um, and uh, once again, uh, this is from Fabrizio Romano. He found, this is an official statement from the Super League uh, people. Uh, they basically say this, guys, the European Super League is convinced that the current status quo of European football needs to change. We are proposing a new European competition because the existing system does not work. Our proposal is aimed at allowing the sport to evolve while generating resources and stability for the full pyramid, including helping to overcome the financial difficulties experienced by the entire football community as a result of the pandemic. It would also provide materially enhanced solidarity payments to all football stakeholders. Despite the announced departure of the English clubs forced to take such decisions due the pressure out on them, we are convinced our proposal is fully aligned with European law and regulations, as was demonstrated today by a court decision to protect the Super League from third-party actions. Given the, circun the current circumstances, we shall reconsider the most appropriate steps to reshape the project, always having in mind our goals of, of offering fans the best experience possible while enhancing solidarity payments for the entire football community. Um, you know, Peter, if that's the case, then why couldn't they just say that right off the bat if they feel that the pandemic has caused a lot of financial issues for probably even the strongest clubs in each nation's, you know, top league? Well, 
last week when this first came down, there were people that were hypothesizing this was a red herring throw out there an absurd proposal that everyone is going to lambast so that when you come back with round two, which may have been their intention all along, it has relatively greater support. Yeah. I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, you, know, you know, I, I, I mean, I mean, I you know, if they. Well, well, Daniel, the way they unveiled this thing, just from any kind of marketing or PR standpoint, these are supposedly very smart people, very successful people that run these major clubs. Florentino Perez is an incredible survivor of uh, politics in Spain and politics of Real Madrid. John W. Henry's not a dumb man. Uh, Joel Glazer's not a dumb man. For them to have botched the launch so uh, spectacularly as they did, and just absolute embarrassment, that gives credence to what Peter is saying. Because, I mean, we're trying to rationalize how could such smart people be so stupid and, 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 and then keep spinning? Like, they, they, they just they kept digging deeper and deeper over the 48 to 72 hours this went on. So maybe it, the whole thing was a red herring because, yes, anything they propose now in the future – relatively speaking, we'll have more support. And we may say, oh, well, that's okay when we compare it to the original proposal. Maybe this isn't so bad. So, yeah, it, it could be that. I, I, don't think, I wouldn't dismiss what Peter's saying. I think that there's a – because there's no other rationalization for how they could have done something so incredibly colossal and stupid. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, who, who is the banker? Is it J.P. Morgan. They came out and apologized. Yeah. So that makes me think that if it was a ruse, they were not in on the joke. <laughs> yeah, <All> right. <laughs> well, good old chase. You know, I mean, uh, sometimes you know you do well with their banks, and sometimes you don't. Um, but you know, I, I just feel like guys that you know what they should have done, in my opinion, was that I think they should have gone to both. Johnny Infantino, who was the president of FIFA, they should have also had a meeting that shared the meeting with the president of UEFA. I don't know who that is. I, I, I saw his name briefly on a YouTube uh, video of, uh, you know, talking about this. Let me see if I can grab his name real quick so I can uh, say his name properly. Yep. Alexander Seferin, who's the president of UEFA. Um, and this is, of course, what he said, you know, before the Super League uh, decided to pull out of their berth. We will take all the sanctions that we can, and we will inform you as soon as we have a clear answer. My opinion is that as soon as possible, the players have to be banned from all our competitions. I cannot stress more strongly UEFA and the footballing world are united against the disgraceful self Serving proposals we have seen fueled purely by greed. It's a nonsense of a project. We will not allow them to take this away from us. And that's what it feels like, guys, to be honest with you. That's what it feels like. It feels like they're, they are trying to take it away. And, you know, seeing what we have seen, Peter, um, basically through supporters, and obviously we all know about supporters here um in this country oh and we lost peter unfortunately hopefully we'll get him back up oh, there we go sorry about that we got peter back sorry about that peter um as i was trying to say 
um, you know, everything that goes on in Europe, you know, here in the States, we watch what goes on in Europe. We watch these clubs, whether it be on NBC Sports, ESPN Plus, be in sports, now Paramount Plus app for the UEFA Champions League and soon the CONCACAF Nations League, obviously. But we're watching what goes on in Europe, in the top competitions in club, European club football, uh, the, the big five nations in England, Italy, Spain, Germany. If, if you want to add... France, I mean, it's not that big, but it's mostly four. But, I mean, if you want to add France, if you want to add some of these other countries that are trying to get bigger and better, um, y- you know, the, the way this whole situation was rolled out, I mean, this was probably the worst time they could ever do it during a pandemic when there are no supporters in these stadiums all across Western Europe. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I will say from an American standpoint uh, and a guy who's trying to start and roll out with a promotion relegation open system in the United States, this may be the best thing that could have happened for NISA. It's educating Americans on the difference between an open system and a closed system. And I think the serious soccer fans, you know, the people that are listening to us right now, they get it. They understand it. The the education is not needed. But for a large swath of the American soccer landscape, I'm not certain they all appreciate that what they're seeing in Major League Soccer and USL is a closed system with territorial exclusivity, no promotion relegation, with a game's played in a different structure than it is in the rest of the world. And this shined a spotlight on that. So I, I don't think it, you know, solves all of Nisa's challenges and gets us to the front of the line with everything. But I think it is a small step towards educating uh, the populace, the soccer populace anyways, what Nisa is trying to accomplish. And Cardick, you know, I want to take Rio Ferdinand's comments. He was on BT Sport um, a couple of days ago, obviously, when the whole thing rolled out, um, being a Manchester United player, and of course he was a, a, a fan of the club. He called it a war on football when the Super League came out. Do you believe that with this Super League going into Europe or the attempt to bring it to Europe, that this is a war on football. I mean, is this a? I mean, are we really challenging, or are they challenging how football is played in their countries and and what uh, football sh- how it should be played in our country? Yeah, I think that certainly structurally, not not necessarily how the game should be played from a technical standpoint. Although I, I would argue uh, closed systems eventually affect that, uh, which is why I'm I'm a big supporter of, of Peter uh, P- Peter's project. Uh, in fact, Peter remembers I, I did one of the first interviews with him uh, once he launched NISA uh, with the late Jack Cummings. Wow, it's probably what five years ago, um, and and obviously worked in NASL and. and uh, and in other independent soccer entities, because I, I do believe eventually closed systems uh, stifle your potential from a footballing standpoint, and, and definitely your potential from a, from a commercial and marketing standpoint. 
Um, War seems like a, a little bit of hyperbole. I did watch Rio Ferdinand on BT Sport and along with uh, Joe Cole, who played in NASL, by the way. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, Chris Sutton was on there with them and Robbie Savage uh, having this conversation. Uh, the, 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 the fact is, though, once you begin to close systems off and you begin to choke uh, the ability of, of teams to, to up, uh, be upwardly mobile and advance, uh, it's very, very difficult uh, for football to exist in the same fashion it has. I mean, like right now, um, the, my favorite team to watch in Europe is actually Atalanta, which is a team in Bergamo. They are in Serie A. They are not a big club, but they have been very good the last few seasons. They've been very entertaining. I, I say I like watching them from an entertainment standpoint. That club was about to be uh, absolutely screwed over by three of its neighbors. Um, Bergamo is about 40 miles from Milan, so two, two near neighbors, and then Turin's not much further, um, further from there. So, yeah, I do think it was a war on football. And I do think if you, if you have success closing off a system, which includes the biggest uh, and most visible uh, uh, brands in, in this sport, then you probably are going to uh, have success eventually changing the entire character and structure of the sport. But, um, you know, what Peter said at the outset actually is, 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 is probably right. This was never going to make it people like me were freaking out for 72 hours i mean everybody saw my twitter feed how bothered by this i was and how bothered so many people like us were but in reality maybe peter was right this was such a if it wasn't a ruse it was such a poorly constructed uh uh thing where there was no absolutely no understanding of the culture around this sport in western europe to where it was going to fall apart after 72 hours so so maybe in 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 reality um this was, will end up being a good thing because I like what Peter said. I, I've actually been thinking this privately myself. There were a lot of American fans who come to me in the last, uh, uh, last four or five days and said, you know what, we, we, we never realized how, how different MLS and USL were from everything else until, until now. And, and, and uh, yeah, we'll still support our local USL club or MLS club, uh, but it, 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 we do feel a little dirty about it. Maybe, maybe there needs to be... Uh, an open system and and and, uh, and a more uh, a, a more uh, a path for for independent clubs who want to be in an open system. And maybe MLS remains closed, but uh, there would at least be a system in in in, up in the other divisions or another path for clubs. So uh, there's more conversation about that now than there was ten days ago. So uh, to Peter's point, I think he's absolutely right. Now, does it sustain? Does the conversation sustain? Um, I guess that's all of our jobs to keep that conversation going. Peter, I'd like to make a comparison. If I could, I'd like to make a comparison. I'd like to make a comparison to baseball in America. And I I suppose you can make it uh, to other sports in America as well. And many people have brought up the comparison of what the European Super League was trying to do with a closed system is become Major League Baseball or the NBA, the NFL, where there's no promotion relegation, there's no threat to going down. Once you're in that top tier, you're never going away. And that's true. But the impact of that on all other European soccer teams, while I think in in, in, in general people got the correct sense that it would be a catastrophe i think there's a relevant comparison to think about and that is minor league baseball in america 
Now, minor league baseball in America is successful. It's strong. You know, even with or without the recent revamping uh, that had dozens and dozens of teams uh, unaffiliated, they'll survive. They'll, they'll transition into independent teams, non-affiliated teams. But what you have in America with minor league baseball is a sport that the fans don't care about the sport. They don't care about winning and losing in minor league baseball. They show up for the entertainment, the game experience, the hot dog, the beer, the soda, the promotions, the gimmicks. That's what minor league baseball is in America. It's a social experience. It has almost nothing to do with the sport. It certainly doesn't have relevance comparing one minor league team in one part of the country to a different minor league team in the other part of the country. There's probably some people that go to the games to see future stars, and maybe that is a little bit what they can hang their hat on. But if you take away promotion and relegation and the open system in European soccer, the fans of lower division teams all of a sudden lose their relevance to the sport as a whole. There's not that connection, and that's what they're trying to take away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want to throw this uh, – I want to share this analogy as well. I said this in my intro monologue, guys, and, and this is what Peter is saying, obviously. You know, see, the National Football League, the NFL in this country, has no minor league system. Basically, college football develops the players – and then they have to transition from collegiate athlete, uh, you know, collegiate athletics to be a part of the NFL. And this is what Jeremy Schapp said. And this pertains to, of course, I, I root for an NFL team. I root for the New York Jets, which, of course, you know, it's in my blood. I can't help it. But, you know, that doesn't mean that I ignore what goes on on a football pitch. But, you know, watching an American football team, that's what I do uh, as well. But, you know, Jeremy Schapp of ESPN, who basically was doing, you know, watching soccer himself, he probably has a Premier League team himself he's rooting for. He was saying during last year's NFL season that the New York Jets at the time were um, on a very bad season. They were 0-12, 0-13, 14, whatever. And that whoever has the worst record of that season in the National Football League, they get rewarded by having the first overall pick in the first round of the upcoming NFL draft for next season, which will be coming up this Thursday on April 29th. To reward failure to the Jets at the time where they were 0 for something, until they won two games uh, last year, and then they didn't have it. Now, Jacksonville Jaguars have it. They were 1-15. Jets end up being 2-14. and 14. They got the second pick overall. Jacksonville is going to get the first overall pick of the draft this, this coming Thursday night. You're rewarding failure. Maybe these teams in the NFL should be relegated to another league. Where that league is right now, we don't know. It's probably not going to come back. It's probably not going to come at all. 
But could you imagine an NFL fan? And I've already experienced a hatred of that idea that, you know, if the Jets ended up with the number one overall pick in the 2021 NFL draft, that should not happen. They should be relegated out of the National Football League. That gave Jet fans, they were irate when they heard that opinion from him from the sports reporters on every Sunday on ESPN. They swore at him. They yelled at him. And, you know, I was on a Jet podcast, and I said, listen, I understand where he's coming from because I'm a soccer guy too, and I've told them this is the reason why he said that. Because, you know, if the NFL ever had promotion relegation, forget it. There would be no NFL draft. The NFL draft would be like the MLS super draft. You just pick somebody and that's it. And you don't have to worry about any, you know, promotion relegation or anything like that. But if there was no draft, you know, the, the, the top prospect of this upcoming draft would be going somewhere else instead of going to be picked by Jacksonville. The guy would be a free agent, and he would go somewhere else. That's the situation that everyone in Europe, Cardic, is what they're probably getting a little worried about. Could you imagine in, in England they don't sign free agents? Or, or, I mean, like, they don't, you know, they don't sign free agents, or you get a university kid that is, like, unbelievable, or they will lose an academy player that has been a part of their academy for so long. And then he just signs some – he gets drafted by, for the hell of it, let's just say Liverpool or by Fulham or maybe by the other, the other Manchester club in Man City. I mean, that would make Man United irate, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, it'll never happen in, in, in Europe, the, the, the sort of draft system. You know, the one thing I, I, I did, uh, I would always say, though, about the draft uh, in, in American sports is it makes you scout. I think – the baseball draft is more interesting to me because uh, that's, as Peter talked about, the minor league system, that's stopping the minor league system, and you have to really do some in-depth scouting. I mean, college football is on – college football is the most televised sport in the country, so it, it doesn't take in-depth scouting. I like Peter's point about the minor league um, in baseball because I think that that's what would end up happening to European football. You would have supporters who still have a bond with their club and with their ground and with their community. But it would be less about the results at that point. It would be more about going to the ballpark or going to the ballpark. We're talking about minor league baseball, but going to the, to the ground um, and, uh, and enjoying your day out. It would be less about uh, performance and sporting merit, which I think is what we're, we're trying to get back at here is that everything is supposed to be about sporting merit in this sport. Uh, when you speak about uh, Jeremy Schaap, by the way, Jeremy Schaap ha- has covered soccer extensively in his his career at ESPN, the son of the late great Dick Schaap. Uh, so, yeah, he knows soccer very well, which is why he made he made the analogy about the Jets. And I guess a lot of your fellow Jets fans, uh, Daniel, don't don't follow soccer, didn't didn't understand what he was talking about. But yeah, so what 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 ends up happening is you reward failure and you reward mediocrity, which is. Um, the problem. I, one other thing I want to point out real quickly on the Super League, somewhat off topic, but you have a couple of really poorly managed businesses recently. Juventus, Barcelona, and Real Madrid to a lesser extent. They, are, they have mismanaged their businesses. So what they were looking for also with the Super League potentially was a payday to bail them out. The only way they yep. can get that payday, because I said this earlier, 
is that uh, uh, the English clubs are much more marketable from a global perspective and have um, financial structures that are more robust, right? And, and there's more television money in the Premier League, et cetera. I mean, also in Asia, the Premier League is huge. So they needed the Premier League clubs in this breakaway so that they could try and balance their books. So let's keep that in mind when we talk about this European Super League. You have three clubs, three, three, three of the five ringleaders. The other two were Liverpool and Manchester United. But three of the five ringleaders, and the three that are still in the Super League as we speak, are three impeccably uh, poorly run. Uh, impeccably is the wrong, wrong term. I have to reverse them. <laughs> really, poor, really poorly run clubs the last couple of seasons. Yeah. No, you're absolutely really right. Is. They're Go looking ahead. for EPL to be their lifeline. Yeah, they really are. And, I mean, that's the one thing I also think uh, with this whole situation is, I, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, blame some of these clubs for not paying their bills on time. But, I mean, we have to say this, Peter. How many clubs in Europe, or in England, I should say, below the Premier League level have been in administration for how long now? I mean, Wigan is basically the poster boy for being in administration how many times they've gotten themselves into trouble, even though they did win an FA Cup over Manchester City. Sorry, Cardiff, but I had to bring it up. Um, <laughs> to just basically, you know, put themselves in financial peril almost every single season they've played, whether it's in the Premier League or it's in the Championship or Leagues 1 and 2 or whatever leagues they've been in below the top four leagues of Europe. Yeah, and it's a a market from top to bottom, though, in Europe, where the the broadcast yeah. revenue is obviously uh, rich at the top level, and they have the golden parachutes, they have the solidarity payments. They Those need to be tweaked to make sure that the foundation of their sport is taken care of. Uh, because, you know, operating revenues are are not just a european thing in terms of the shortfalls that happens around the world and not just in soccer you know the nfl might be the only pro sports league where every single team is printing money the major league sports in america all hemorrhage money from an operating standpoint but they're making money on the valuation of the clubs as they go up and for that to be consistent in europe you need to have the wealthy clubs, the wealthy leagues, be subsidizing the lower leagues because that's the foundation of the league, the way it's structured with the open system, which is what the fans love. Mm-hmm. No, very true. And, and, and now – To that point, Daniel, really quickly to that point, it's really important what Peter just said. No, this has been uh, – a, a lot of American pro-rel advocates have said that I'm – you know, an apostate or whatever, because I, I give these nuanced critiques and they think that I'm now uh, an enemy, right? I'm not, they, they'll call me an MLS shill and all this stuff. But the reality is my big complaint about the Premier League specifically is when the Premier League was formed, they started to take broadcast and TV money away from the from uh, what are now called Championship League One, League Two. They were Division One, Division Two, and Division Three in those days. So. To me, a lot of the problems Wigan and Bolton and Bury, who's now gone under, uh, and uh, Sheffield Wednesday and other clubs have experienced in the last few years that have gone into administration have been due to less and less of the television money floating down the pyramid. And so this year we had a pandemic and we had 
uh, now people uh, kind of renewing the call of what I just said. I've been saying it for, for, for a decade or more. And uh, the Gary Nevels of the world were saying, hey, uh, Premier League clubs, open up your wallets, open up your hearts. You, you need to fund the rest of the football pyramid. You need to help them out. So Manchester United and Liverpool, two of the perpetrators of the Super League, uh, did this thing called Operation Big Picture, where they were looking, they were effectively looking to hoard even more revenue under the guise that they were helping the rest of the pyramid. And then, you know, six months later, they do this breakaway. But I think what Peter said is so important because in England, the reason we're having so many clubs go into administration is the Premier League has gotten greedier and greedier and wealthier and, uh, uh, and wealthier and wealthier. If you look at Germany, I know I always come back to Germany as the, the perfect model, and I know it's not possible to replicate that ownership structure in most places. But in Germany, that money that is generated by Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund at the top floats down the pyramid all the way down to the regional leagues, and that does not happen in England. And that's um, one of the reasons I'm a great champion of the German model. It isn't just the 50 plus one, which I love, but it's also that they take care of the rest of the pyramid in a way that they don't in England. And the way, in a way we don't in the United States, obviously, or that we, we, we know really well. Yeah. Karthik, no, you're a brilliant person. I, I, I really respect your, your thoughts on that. And um, you're right. And, you know, Thank one you. more <laughs> plug for Nisa, one more plug for Nisa. When Jack and I structured this league back in 2016, 17, um, it was, with solidarity payments up and down the structure. And it, it's, that's one of the challenges that NISA is going to have. I mean, it's easy to say we're going to implement uh, promotion and relegation, but it also needs to be done in context with how are the top teams financially supporting the bottom teams. Yeah. Now, All right, gentlemen. That's and why I, I love that NISA vision. Yep. Yeah, sorry, yeah, same here. All right. No, that's all right. You're fine. You're fine. That once again, Four Scenes Fire American Soccer Show. I have Carter Krishnar from World Soccer Talk. And, of course, Peter Wilt, owner of Chicago House, uh, and also uh, the man that also helped create the NISA. Uh, as we've talked about the UEFA Super League uh, birth and death. And now the one thing that I've always said, of course, that we've already talked about the feelings of this is not open competition, this Super League. It was a closed competition, and we have this going on in American soccer right now through our professional leagues. Every single league run by whichever entity it is, Major League Soccer, United Soccer Leagues with Championship, League One, League Two, uh, MPSL. Let me just say I work very well with the MPSL. I love my partnership with the MPSL. Cardiac, of course, is the... Uh, Helps out with the communication uh, department with the uh, premier amateur soccer league. Uh, of course, I have a connection with him through them now. And any other leagues that are here in the United States, obviously, uh, with no promotion relegation at the moment in our leagues and within our structure through U.S. soccer, the questions have to be asked again and I've said this many, many times, and you two can agree or disagree with my assessments because I've always felt that it's not just a governance issue through U.S. soccer. I also firmly believe that every single club 
must own their own stadium, not pay rent to either a high school field or an athletic um, an athletic field area, like, you know, for a baseball field, a football field, a track and field, a soccer field, all in the same area within the town, uh, not a college football stadium. Uh, don't pay rent to an NFL stadium. You must build your own stadium for the sport. Of course, let's not forget what Peter's done, of course, with uh, Forward Madison in USL League One, Indy 11, uh, in NASL now with USL Championship. What he's done now with Chicago House that has SeatGeek Stadium in Bridgeview, Illinois. Um, and Peter, I, I think that am I would I say not owning a stadium is harming the idea of of involving promotion relegation in this country. Is that considered a red herring from me, or do you feel that's an accurate statement about the finances of paying rent to another uh, entity that you must use that field to play your official league match in? Well, the, um, I think the term you used is not accurate. You, know, you don't, in my okay. opinion, you don't need to own a stadium, but I think controlling the, the schedule and controlling the revenue streams is very important. And you're right. There's a reason that Major League Baseball teams all own and control their stadiums. There's a reason that you know NFL, NBA, NHL teams uh, mostly control the revenue streams in their venues. It it allows you the opportunity to be a successful business. No doubt about that. The the expense side of it, you know, paying the rent really isn't the biggest part of the deal. I mean, you know, it may end up being um, a single digit percentage of your overall budget. So you don't want to pay rent. You'd rather pay to yourself or have other people paying you rent, but it's about controlling the dates for soccer teams. You don't want to be the third tenant in a three uh, tenant uh, venue and you want to be able to control the revenue streams, whether it's you know parking, uh, food and beverage, or merchandise. I mean, those are the big ones that you're going to want to retain. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. But what's more important is just the sustainability of the teams so that the value will continue to go up. If you look at the history of the valuation of the major sports teams in America, they have consistently gone up for 100 years, even against inflation. They've gone up significantly, even for major league teams that have consistently lost money. Uh, for soccer teams, that really wasn't the case until the last decade or two. Uh, and that is maybe an underspoken uh, rule about uh, American soccer, and it's one of the great, great success stories of uh, American soccer is that the value of teams is actually going up in real terms. Teams are being sold like the Chicago fire last year, reportedly for over $300 million. That gives validity to the expansion prices that major league soccer is charging. At least there's something to peg the price on. I 
personally don't believe there should be an expansion fee. It should be no barrier to entry. It should be accessed via an open system, what we've been talking about all night. Uh, clubs should start from the ground up and, and earn their way through meritocracy to the top, not just write a big check. But at least the business now is at the point where the valuation of these major league teams is in nine figures. And that's because they've existed, they've sustained, they have not folded. The next hurdle is lower division teams to achieve the same status. And they're starting to. And to USL's credit, the expansion fees they've been charging have been going up slowly but surely over the last decade. And that's a direct result of supply and demand and sustainability. And these teams, some of them are actually being sold. Whereas in the, call it the 50 years before that, there were not lower division teams being sold to anybody. There wasn't a market for it. They were just, uh, they would play until they couldn't sustain the losses anymore, and then they would fold. But to your original point, Daniel, if you can control your venue, control the scheduling, control the revenue streams, you have that good chance for sustainability. And Kardec, I mean, I think that's the number one reason I've been saying this and I've been championing this. It's not that I don't want to see promotion relegation not coming here. I want to see it coming here, but I really believe that the controlling of the venue for these clubs is more apparent right now to be stabilized than to just blindly implement something and then and this is my concern, and I call it concern because we've seen it far too many times how many USL clubs have lived and died for either a year, uh, after a year, two years. I mean, San Francisco Deltas only had one year. They won the title of NASL, and then the NASL fell apart. But still, though, it was only a one-year thing for the Deltas. And every other club that's been around, I mean, Deportivo La Coruña had a club in the Bay Area. They only were around for like two years until they had a financial death. I don't want to see lower-level clubs dying a financial death, and they can't stay around longer than past two, three, four, even five years of their existence. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I, I will just give you this example. I hope I'm not speaking out of school. Uh, I was uh, working at a, uh, for a couple of years at a lower division club that uh, recently, that's now in USL, in the USL championship, that uh, the, the greatest expense by far is stadium rent. And, uh, and I, everybody knows what club I'm talking about. So I'm talking about my MGFC. And, um, and the, the, um, we would have to make decisions about security and what parking lots we wanted to open because there were because there were these issues where we were getting fleeced on rent and we and we uh, we couldn't control the concessions we couldn't we didn't control the parking revenue uh, we would actually have to pay to open parking lots and not see any of the revenue so um, it was a particularly bad lease deal in my opinion but that 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 having been said um, there were a lot of lower division clubs that are in that same. Uh, same position and you know basically we had given the university the naming rights for our owner 
um, and his name is on the stadium, but they've got nothing in terms of revenue for the club. Uh, you know, we didn't control any of the revenue. If you don't control your revenue streams, you're going to have a hard time surviving. And, yes, that has to be stabilized before uh, we go to an open system. And I, I, I'm very, very encouraged by the number of lower division clubs, USL clubs, that have been sold for, for decent dollar amounts um, recently. Although, again, I would think they would be sold for greater dollar amounts if we were in an open system. There was some possibility of taking that club uh, up into the first division. But um, – you have to control your revenues and you also have to control your date. That's important also, because another thing you mentioned, um, I'm helping uh, administer the, the, the an amateur, adult amateur league here in, in, uh, in the state of Florida. And we have teams, all our teams are either in um, NPSL and UPSL also, right? So they're, they're in some national league and then they're the local league, the state league they play in uh, is, is, is the league that I'm helping out with. And um, finding it impossible uh, to get dates at venues for these clubs, both for NPSL and for our league or UPSL in our leagues to the point where we're now on some of the dates we get to stadium, our teams are having to play two matches because they're going to have to play in our league that day and play in NPSL that day. And, and uh, um, Cindy and, and, and the group at NPSL is aware of the situation too. And it's just, you have to deal with it this way. So it, it, it's controlling revenue streams. It's also being able to, to pick and choose your dates at your venue um, properly and, and get preferred dates. And I think this is something that's very good that MLS has done with their clubs, with soccer-specific stadiums. I uh, am a little concerned by the number of USL teams playing in, in minor league baseball stadiums, and, and they may, get, may not get first preference of dates, even if they're getting some revenue because they, they've got some arrangement with the owner. Uh, but I do think dates and controlling revenue streams is critical. And once we do that, we can open the system up. But if we're focused on doing that, I believe we can do that in the next few years and have a, a, a logical timeline with those triggers in mind, to, and then we can then open up the system. But what Peter is mentioning, Daniel, this goes back to the zealotry of some of the people who, who advocate promotion and relegation, which, which all of us on this show are advocating. But they don't understand you have to stabilize certain things at the lower division level, and that will take a couple of years up at, the, at, at a minimum. It may take longer than that before you can actually have a fully open system. For example, with NISA, with Peter, uh, you have to stabilize that, that uh, what is designated as the third division first and have all the teams in a secure position, which they're on their way to doing as a league. Uh, they're a couple years into this before you open it up and you have, uh, you have promotion and relegation in other divisions. But I, some of our fans in this country are just impatient and they think that you can snap your fingers and you'll have the open system overnight. And like I said, guys, I mean, look, I want it to come as quickly as possible, but we have to be realistic about it because in this country at the moment, I'm not saying that I'm sticking with a closed system. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is, is that for now, I'm happy that we have you know, functioning leagues. I'm happy that we have clubs that are alive and well and going forward and they're doing things magical. I mean, unfortunately, the only way you can do things against MLS clubs is during the Open Cup. I mean, we'd love to see more of it, you know, uh, you know, for fighting for Pro-Rel and everything. But, you know, for now, it has to be this way. And I'm not saying for the rest of our lives. It, it has to change somewhere down the road. It has to. 
But for now, we just have to remain status quo until we have financial protection for every single club in every single state, every single city or town or just in the suburbs, wherever it is, some market to remain stabilized. And then we can implement it when everything has been taken care of. There's so much time ahead of us. And I think that us as a soccer country, as a, as a nation that loves this sport, and it doesn't matter who the haters are, there is time on, on our side to make sure every club in MLS, because I know the Patriots own the revolution, the Sounders are doing well at their NFL stadium that they share with the Seahawks, which is really their stadium, but a member of their ownership group is also part of the Sounders ownership group. Um, we're seeing, you know, uh, you know, how many, I mean, I mean, look at Texas outside of El Paso, how many clubs in MLS and USL have their own stadiums? I mean, you would, you wouldn't believe how Texas has done everything the right way. I mean, San Antonio, Houston, Dallas slash Frisco, uh, you're seeing Austin now with two teams, in USL Championship and MLS with their own stadiums. I mean, I've already proposed having an under-20 tournament in the United States, but have it all played in Texas because you don't have to worry about the traveling. You don't have to worry about long distance with the planes, with the kids. You have at least four to six, maybe even seven stadiums ready to go in Texas to have an under-20 tournament that could be hosted by the U.S., I mean, isn't that something, Cardick? Peter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's fantastic. And obviously, uh, the Gold Cup, a lot of those uh, matches are going to be this summer in, in Texas. Uh, I think that that's also cynically due to COVID, right, and a lot, lack of COVID restrictions uh, because of their governor, much like here in Florida where I am. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have a governor hmm. that uh, has been uh, uh, you know, indulgent of this sort of thing of opening too early. But uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think that it's fantastic. We can host U20 tournaments. We can host uh, other tournaments, and that those are revenue streams for those clubs also. Uh, but I think just in terms of stability, going back to what Peter said, it is important that you have control and you have uh, you have a venue that you have control of. I mean, Peter's been on both sides of that. In Chicago, he was the driving force behind getting that, that brilliant stadium built in Bridgeview. Uh, unfortunately, in Indy, he dealt with what happens when you don't have your own venue and you're at the mercy of other people, uh, which is what ha- which happened with Indy 11 for, for much of their existence. So uh, I, I think you know, he, he, he speaks with some authority on this subject because of, uh, because of his own experiences. And, and to me, it's critical, the venue, not just for, for, for these other uh, ancillary things, but specifically for the clubs to survive. They need, the, they need that uh, security blanket, so to speak. Yeah, well, yeah, for, they really if do. we're talking open system in the long term, if we want promotion relegation, it comes down to critical mass of teams. You can't do pro-rel if you only have 14 teams. Um, and you really shouldn't do it with 16 teams. But you need a critical mass of teams, at least 24 teams. You can argue more, but you know, let's say 24 to baseline. And then you get to kind of your point, Daniel, 
the cart before the horse. Do you go forward with it when you get to 24 teams, or do you go forward when you get to 24 financially sound teams? And as much as I'd like to say it's the latter, I think to get it implemented and maximize the activation of it, I think a league and NISA, who I'm talking about, should implement promotion relegation as soon as it has numbers. And in any new league, especially a new soccer league, it's going to be a dynamic situation. You're going to have teams that uh, have eyes bigger than their stomach, and they don't uh, last too long in the beginning of a league. The key is adding more teams than fall away. And to Nisa's credit, they've created a national affiliation with a network of amateur teams called Nisa Nation. Out east, it's uh, Eastern Premier Soccer League, where I am at the Midwest Premier Soccer League, the Gulf Coast Premier League, Mountain uh, Premier League, and it's national. There's over 200 teams. What that provides is not only an incubator for these amateur teams that have higher ambition to grow into a professional team and get promoted into NISA Pro, but it can also serve as a softer landing pad for a pro team in NISA that maybe bit off more than they can chew, needed more experience, needs more capital uh, to operate as a professional team, and they can go back to being an amateur team and continue playing soccer in their communities, continue providing their fan base with the sport they love, and either grow back or maybe that's the level they need to be at. That's the way the sport is in the rest of the world. Not every team is professional. Not every team is in the top tier. And America should be the same way. Markets need to find their own level. And each community should have the opportunity to have more than one team. Buenos Aires has 18 professional teams. They're not all top tier. They all represent different things, certainly a different neighborhood, a different geography, but they can represent different socioeconomic uh, groups, um, different religions. <laughs> you, know, you look at Celtic Rangers, and we don't have enough of that in the United States because of the territorial exclusivity. And an open system allows that. It allows communities to have their own identity, whether it, it creates more of the Cubs-Sox dynamic. And that's one of the things that really excites me about, about NISA is, is that opportunity. And part of that, unfortunately, is you're going to have teams that come up and then they go down. Hopefully they don't fold, but I think part of an open system is that dynamic structure where some clubs will be promoted even in the same market and, and some will go down. Yeah, Daniel, that, that I want to follow up on what Peter just said because that's, to me, such an important and exciting part of NISA, important part of an open system, is the lack of territorial and geographic uh, protections or restrictions. Uh, that, 
to me, critical because this sport is at its finest when you have local derbies, when you have local rivalries, when you have in, in large cities. Uh, like I mean, we talked about Manchester, Manchester United, Manchester City, but there's also Bari, who I mentioned had got, had got under. But Bolton is in Greater Manchester. Wigan is in Greater Manchester. Rochdale is in Greater Manchester. Salford City, which uh, uh, Phil Neville, who's now the manager of Inter Miami, is a co-owner of. They, they, they're in Manchester also. They're in the Football League. They're in League Two. So, um, and David Beckham is the co-owner. Sorry, David Beckham and Phil Neville are co-owners, actually, of that team. And Beckham is uh, obviously a co-owner of the MLS team also in, in Fort Lauderdale. But um, that, to me, is one of the most exciting things about what Peter uh, launched at NISA with, with the late Jack Cummings and with the whole idea of open systems is the lack of territorial restrictions. I, I think local derbies fuel interest in the sport. Uh, and I found this at, even at the, uh, at the NPSL level. I mean, you, you, you uh, Daniel, of course, are a partner of NPSL, uh, your show, that NPSL – the, the greatest driver when there was a couple that one year in Miami FC where NASL had collapsed and we had to play in uh, NTSL before we went to NISA. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by the interest in us playing it with a professional team in an amateur league because of the fact that we were playing, we were playing entirely local teams, teams that were all, uh, either also from Miami or from Fort Lauderdale or from Palm Beach, and then there was a team in Naples. That was really uh, something that I did not quite grasp. I'd always talked about it conceptually uh, because of what happened overseas, but I didn't grasp domestically how much of a driver that could be an interest, even of the, the top team, how many people that were Miami FC fans for, uh, had been with us in NASL that uh, stuck with us in, in, in uh, NPSL because we were playing Miami United or we were playing um, um, the, the Storm from Fort Lauderdale or we were playing Boca Raton FC, uh, and they knew someone associated with the other club or they had uh, uh, supported the other club or they had a friend who played for the other club. I mean, so there, there are these things that come with uh, taking away territorial restrictions, and actually NPSL does have territorial restrictions, but they're like 10-mile radius. It's not, not 100 miles like uh, – like uh, MLS, but that was something I recently learned can really work in this country because uh, local derbies fuel interest. Even if you're a professional team that's been dropped in an amateur league and and your fans may think, ah, we don't want to watch this team in an amateur league, but then you're playing local teams. So they they stay interested. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And until then, we just got to stay where we are. It's rough, it's tough, but Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither was American soccer. But I will say this, gentlemen, and whether you care to answer or not, it's okay, but I I feel like at this point in time, I feel like our uh, the governing body of the sport in this country, I feel like it's a rudderless ship, and I don't know what they're doing. They just don't want to uh, talk to the people. The Board of Governors is running the Federation. Right now, Cindy Parlo Cohn may be the president, but what has she really done? What has Carlos Cordero actually done before uh, he, after he was voted in as president and before uh, he was thrown out or he stepped down after the whole debacle of the uh, uh, not paying the women uh, a proper wage for the national team? We don't know what Soccer House is doing. We really don't know what they're doing, what their governance is, and, and how they're going to move forward. I, I really believe they're just 
either have their heads buried into the sand like an ostrich does uh, by the beach, or they are just standing idly by and uh, just allowing things to walk right past them. I, I, I don't know anymore, Peter. It, it's, it's tough to uh, gauge what U.S. soccer is doing these days. Yeah, I think there's too much of a consolidation of power. And unfortunately, it's with the few. Um, you know, you can make an argument that if the consolidation of power was around the youth or the adult amateur that there's a a good reason for that because that's the sheer numbers of people involved in the sport. I I think the adult amateurs and the youth soccer folks need to be given or better yet take a greater uh, involvement, a greater voice in the direction of the sport in this country. And then, you know, it's it's very self-serving, but I also think that the folks involved in independent, what's considered independent soccer, uh, adult soccer in this country, whether it's NPSL, UPSL, uh, NISA, these folks should be considered the mainstream of the sport. They're not. We're, we're considered the outlaws on the outside looking in. In the rest of the world, Folks that are playing the sport, like these independent leagues, are the mainstream, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. the open system. And, uh, in the United States, you know, the, 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 the folks that are playing the closed system, the system that was just roundly booed and derided with the European Super League, those same folks are controlling the sport in this country. They're making the decisions. They're being viewed as mainstream, as what's normal. It's not normal. In a global context, (laughs) that's abnormal. And I'm hopeful that in this last week, more and more people in this country that care about the sport will recognize the abnormality of a closed system. Kardik, your thoughts uh, on this one? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, that's my hope is that uh, there are more. And like I said, in the last 72 to 96 hours, there have been people who told me, look, you know, we, we're still going to support our USL club or our MLS club, but we're feeling a little um, uh, dirty is the wrong term, but we're, we're feeling a little more conflicted about it because now we see kind of the difference between an open system and a closed system after this last week. And we understand why supporters in the rest of the world uh, don't want the kind of closed system we have in this country. And, yeah, I, I completely agree with Peter. I made this observation at the AGM. I made it to Rocco Camiso, so you, know, you, can, you can think what you want about that. But I made the observation to Rocco Camiso in, in Orlando in 2018 when that presidential election was going on that, to me, it was, it was stunning that the youth soccer folks and the adult amateur folks, as Peter said, they were the stakeholders, right? They were the shareholders, if you will, the greatest number of stakeholders in that uh, in that convention, in that uh, um, in that hotel, a, 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 at the AGM, and that they seem powerless or relatively powerless compared to the people at the very top. Uh, not that not that Rocco was that sympathetic because he he wanted some of the power himself, obviously. But I, I made the observation because I thought it was really strange to me that 
you have a gathering of a thousand folks or so, and the people with the control are uh, effectively um, the, the, the the twenty some owners of professional of, of top of top division professional teams, and then some other stakeholders in the federation. So yeah, I think um, in most countries also you see grassroots soccer, you see bottom up people on the grassroots level having more influence than their FAs, and there have been massive clashes between the football associations in Europe and the professional leagues. Uh, La Liga and the Spanish Federation don't get along. Uh, there has been a lot of tr- trouble through the years between the professional leagues in England and the football association. Uh, but in this country, it seems to be the opposite. Those who are doing the things that uh, are lauded in the rest of the world, as Peter said, they are, um, they are seen as pariahs, for lack of a better term, and, and we need to change that. We really do. And all I can say is this, as we're going to wrap it up tonight, gentlemen, uh, I do hope one day we will get to where we are. The hope is, uh, depending on what this Super League will do in UEFA, let's hope it's going to be a positive one. If not, then just throw it out completely, because if if they're not going to restructure it and make it fair for everyone, then it, it makes no sense to have it in the first place. We cannot have it closed, uh, closed competition. Everything has to be open, and hopefully... One day we'll have this closed competition open here in U.S. soccer. Uh, Peter Wilt, Carter Krishnire, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you as always, guys, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you both, Carter. Always a pleasure talking to you. Same here, Daniel. Um, I really appreciate the forum and uh, the dialogue you offer the fans. Thank you. Likewise, and, uh, likewise, Daniel and Peter. We need more Peters out there in, in American soccer. Yes, we I do. Think we can clone Peter Wilt and have about uh, 30 of them out there. <laughs> Absolutely. And let me just say this about Cardiff's tweets during that Super League situation. It wasn't – he was just being kind. He was fully enraged. Let me tell you something. When this yeah. man <laughs> is enraged on Twitter, you know it's something serious. So be careful, everyone. <laughs> Don't make him mad. Don't make Carter Krishnire mad. He will unleash it, and you will burn on your keyboard. I swear to God. But, <laughs> gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you guys Thanks. again somewhere down the road. Thank you. Good night. Thank you, guys. Good night. All right. Good night. Uh, Carter Krishnire, World Soccer Talk. Peter Wilt, owner of Chicago House, creating, of course, NISA. And, of course, he's created many other soccer clubs, Chicago Fire and MLS, Indy 11. NESL, USL Championship, Forward, Madison, SC, in USL League One. Um, it's only fair to talk with them because these are the men that really want to see uh, open play, open everything here in U.S. soccer. And uh, let's see what happens. Obviously, this fight is not done yet with the Super League. We shall see what will happen down the road. But for now, uh, as I've said it already, this does impact us in some ways. It does impact us, and we'll see what will happen down the road. Right now, don't have to worry too much about it, but until then, this is all we can do right now is to take it easy and watch and wait and see what happens next. It's, do- it's done for now, but it's, there's always another day tomorrow. Once again, I want to thank Carter Krishnar of World Soccer Talk, Peter Wilt, owner of Chicago House, AC of NISA. This is Daniel Feuerstein. Join me this coming Friday night, CAF Champions League quarterfinals, first leg review show. 
Enjoy your evening. As always, please enjoy your football. Have a good night. Take care. So long, and bye-bye for now. Have a good night, everybody.